Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Well, what is up, all of our Liberty-loving friends? This is another fantastic episode of the Good Morning Liberty Podcast. My name is Nate Thurston, and, of course, I'm by myself. Normally, there are two of us. Today, there is just one until Charlie gets back from freaking Italy. I don't even know if he's really there. He's probably just at home on the couch asleep. Who actually knows? But while he is gone, we're doing something a little bit different, which is uh, doing interviews with with authors and people from other podcasts and YouTube channels uh, just so I can have someone to talk to because you don't just want to hear me talk for this entire time. And today's guest is Ashley Rinsberg, who's the author of the book, The Gray Lady Winked, How the New York Times Misreporting Distortions and Fabrications Radically Alter history. So this was a really interesting conversation, and this all stemmed from uh, this crazy thing where the New York Times back in 1939, I believe, uh, misreported what was going on with Germany invading Poland. They actually reported that Poland invaded Germany. So if you didn't know it, they've been messing things up for quite a long time. And uh, Ashley has really documented this. So we talked a lot about uh, the media, about manipulation, and just a really cool conversation. So here you go. Here's the interview. Yeah, you know, it, it was um, it was quite unexpected. I never thought I would set out to write a book like this one. Um, but I kind of had this moment reading a great work of history, of World War II history, which is called The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William Shirer, who was a journalist in uh, Europe at the time. And he kind of mentions casually in this footnote that on the eve of World War II, right before Germany invaded Poland, or, or actually right after, um, the New York Times printed the opposite. They printed that Poland had, had attacked Germany. And that sort of flies in the face of like all the fundamentals we know about the Nazi campaign to take over Europe, the, that they were obviously not uh, defending themselves. They were, Hitler was trying to conquer the continent and then the rest of the world. And I thought to myself, how could the New York Times, this great institution of journalism, sterling credibility, have printed such a thing? Number one, is that even possible? And number two, if it is possible, how did it happen? So I went and looked at the archive, and sure enough, that is what they printed that day in 1939, that Polish guerrillas, guerrilla fighters, had attacked this German radio station, and um, they printed Hitler's speech, quote-unquote, responding to the aggression and giving Germany justification for its attack on Poland. Um, and what I discovered from looking into that incident was that it was a Nazi propaganda blitz. And the New York Times bought it hook, line, and sinker, and they sold it to the American public by printing it. And when I went back and looked at that article that they printed that day, it was the lead article, I believe it was September 1st, 1939, um, they offered no response from the Polish side. 
there was no third party commentating on on what was going on. And we have to keep in mind, this was after 10 years of Nazi aggression, 10 years of Nazi propaganda, 10 years of anti-Semitism and persecution of minorities. And the New York Times just kind of took it at face value. And that's where I set off saying, there's got to be more to this. This can't just be an isolated incident. It's too big. It's too extreme. And I went out and started doing the research that led to the rest of the Grey Lady Wing. You know what I noticed from this because I was looking up that headline and uh, yeah, it was September 1st. And what I noticed is uh, it's something that I still see a lot today, which is the story was really about someone else's account of something that had happened. And it wasn't really about it seemed like to me now this I didn't read the entire thing. You see this a lot today. Uh, the news story is what someone else said happened, and it's not actually the story of what happened. And I wonder if that's mm-hmm. a way that they they try to get around the truth, because this is truthfully what someone said happened. In this case, it was what Hitler said happened with uh, mm-hmm. Poland invading Germany. Is that something that they use to skirt the truth? Because uh, it was factually accurate that Hitler said this. Yeah, no, that's a great, great point. You really, you actually really put your finger on it in that case, because what they, what they were not saying, they didn't come out and offer a journalistic account saying exactly as you've identified that Poland had indeed attacked Germany. What they did was they used that little mechanism to say, according to a semi-official German news agency, by which they mean a Nazi mm-hmm. propaganda organ, because there was no such thing as a semi-official news agency at that time. It was all controlled by the regime. So they used that as cover to print this, this falsehood. And yes, absolutely, that is a tactic because the New York Times is, for all of its foibles, for all of its huge flaws, it's very, very sophisticated. These guys are not going to be the type that are going to just bluntly offer the bald-faced lie. They're going to be smart enough, the journalists who are committing these acts of malfeasance, to do something like that, which is to say, using a source that kind of is a gray area. You know, and it gives a kind of double meaning to the word gray in the gray lady, uh, which is the famous moniker of the New York Times, it used to be called the gray lady because the reporting was very like dry. It was very like middle of the road, straight down, straight down the middle um, and very sober minded. The tone was very kind of uh, along those lines as well. But really, when you think about gray in the, this context, it's more like they're kind of playing in the shades of gray there not giving you the truth, not giving you the full falsehood either, but acting in the middle. There are exceptions to that. And, you know, Walter Durante was a, another, was a really good example where he's in chapter two of the book where he just denied, outright denied that there was a famine occurring in Ukraine in 1932, 1933. He just hit it on the head saying, nope, didn't happen. There was no shades of gray in that case um, for different reasons. But you know, so often it is the case that they use that gray area to play in. And I th- I'd say definitely more often than not. But there are also exceptions to that rule. Well, going and uh, the the famine is a really interesting topic also, because I mean, we there's still discrepancies on how many people died in that famine. And we talk a lot about yeah. uh, the, the kulaks, the dekulakization, uh, things like that. And and, you know, obviously, this is something that everyone's going to. Uh, that everyone's going to ask you about, and I know you answer all the time. And of course, the question is always going to be why? What is the incentive 
for them to do this? Yeah, that's exactly the question. I mean, that's the question at the core of the whole thing is to say, and, and when I say the whole thing, not just my book, uh, which is on a smaller level, but of this great institution, this great American institution that so many people have placed their credibility, their, their trust in to, to lend them this kind of credibility. Why would they betray all that trust? Why would they do these things that are just out and out wrong? Like, you know, going back to our first case of World War II, the story behind that was that they had a Berlin bureau chief at the time, the guy who was running the show for the reporting out of Germany, who was a Nazi collaborator. He was working with the Nazis. He was publishing stuff that was so favorable to them that they were reading his articles on Nazi propaganda broadcasts. They, they wanted their people to know this stuff. So the New York Times owners knew about this guy. His name was Guido Andaris. He was a, a known Nazi sympathizer. I call him a collaborator because he actively acted on his Nazi sympathies. And the reason they never removed him from that position was because he brought home the goods. He got great scoops. He got good stories because he had the best access to Nazi sources because they loved him. And for the New York Times owners at home, the management at home, this was business. This was about being number one. And being number one when you're a newspaper in the heyday of newspapers, that's money. That's power. That's prestige. That's status. That's all the things that every big business wants and every, especially every big business owned and operated and controlled by a very small number of people, which is exactly what the, the case is with the New York Times. They're a single family owning this enormous institution that is, you know, it's a $10 billion company, the New York Times company. It's a fairly big company, certainly by the standard of a family controlled operation. Um, but even more so, their, their power is just huge. It's way beyond anything that a comparable $10 billion company in a different industry would have. These guys are able to shape our reality. They're, they edit our reality. And when you look at the through line of all these different instances, it's when the New York Times' owners or the, the owning family, the controlling family of the New York Times company got involved with the story, that things got really scrambled. And that's what we see over, over and over when business interests of this company, which is, which is very much a big media, big news company, just as we have big pharma and big ag and other, other forms of big business, this is big media. And when that element comes to bear, which it often does, that's when things go sideways. Um, again, money and power put in front of the truth. That is a very dangerous equation. Uh, you know, I I did a lot of uh, research and listening to um, to things that you've you've said when you were talking about this, and I wanted to point out to the people listening that I don't take you as someone who just has this vendetta to try and destroy the New York Times because you hate them personally for some reason. What I actually see is that you're someone who cares a lot about the meaning and the truth, and that this is that the New York Times is really just a representation of of this falsehood and of propaganda and and all the things that can go wrong when you have that money and power. Would you, would you say that that's accurate? Yeah, very much so. You know, I, I think there, there's sort of two levels. I think about this on a personal, in a personal sense. One is that, you know, there are a lot of great journalists out there, a lot of hardworking reporters doing their jobs. They are not getting paid as much as they would in other industries. Sometimes they're taking real personal risks to, them, to themselves or the families, but they're doing it for a cause. And those many of those people work at the New York Times. So there's this distinction between the reporters and the journalists who are 
doing the work and the family that's controlling, or in other cases, the shareholders or the board controlling these big media organizations. And that's the other level that I think about this on, which is that I think we've, we're at a crisis point with regard to media and especially in the news where public trust in the media is at an all-time low. And that's a very alarming trend. And it's something that we need to nip in the butt. And we can't do it by saying, hey, public, guys, wake up. You should have more trust in the media. Obviously, that's not going to work. What needs to happen is the media to step back, look at itself, the way that it looks at other industries, the way it has shined a spotlight on pharma, on agriculture, on the chemicals industries, on the healthcare industry. They've never done it with themselves. The storylines that you read about the media in the media are about financial hardships and another newspaper had to lay off this many reporters and that many reporters. It's kind of a sob story. No one has turned the light on the media itself and said, hey, wait, we have a big media problem. We have billions of dollars of interest and, and influence that is actually affecting the way we do our job, the way this business is structured, and the, our customers... The people we're serving don't like it anymore. We need to think about change. And I think that's the, the conversation I really hope this book prompts us to ask news consumers themselves, readers, um, to say, how can I start to make this change on my own? Do you think it's possible uh, for people at these big organizations because they're being ran by human beings? I mean, we've all got biases, right? A little bit. And, and there's a little bit that... I, I try to, obviously, you know, on this show, we don't talk uh, from our biases. We just speak about the truth. Of course, that's all, that's all we talk about. Uh, but maybe I am doing things that I don't realize that I'm doing and it just comes naturally to me. So when you have this big organization, is it actually possible to write about these stories and not uh, manipulate or, or show just one side of the story? Do you think it's actually possible to do this? Um, I do think it is possible. I think it's hard. I think it's very hard. Um, but I think if you're, you know, if you're creating a system that's built to do it, then you are going to do a better job than if you're not trying to do it. And if you're just embracing the bias and doubling down on it, the way CNN has declared in recent months that we're going even harder on the opinion, we're going even harder on the partisanship. And you're saying, well, good for you. That might do your ratings well for a week or two or a month or two. But look what's happened at CNN as a great example in the last few months. They're, it's like someone's like pulled the plug on their audience and their audience is just fleeing. Like there's just once, once Donald Trump was no longer president, they could not sustain that approach to the news. And I think from a business point of view, that's a big problem. But I think from an even greater sort of public institution role that the media plays and is supposed to play, they have to try harder to create balance, number one. But I think even beyond that, because bias is bias is okay. I mean, it's like you're saying, it's kind of natural to human existence. Like we're just looking out for our own interests and we have an agenda. Okay, no problem. What we're seeing with the New York Times in, in the book was that this was not just bias. These are lies. Mm -hmm. And these were lies that were predicated on looking at the truth as a weapon. And that's what you see from Guido Andaris in Nazi Germany saying, you know what, I think I'm just going to tell it the Nazi way. And the New York Times owners, maybe maybe Guido Andaris actually thought he was doing a good thing. I don't think he was. But when the New York Times owners 
saw that this, this was going on, it was brought to their attention. And the response was to threaten the whistleblower with a lawsuit. Now you've got a real problem because that's no longer about bias. That's about putting your own interests above the truth. Yeah. I, I wonder a lot when you we look back at what they did with the Nazi propaganda. Uh, I think uh, what one thing that we do wrong is we look at it through 2021 lens and we say something like, well, there's no way that the New York Times would have been printing any kind of Nazi propaganda. Uh, but that's looking from right now. If you put yourself in the standpoint of, I know in 1939, there's still a lot of really bad things going on. But at that mm -hmm. time, um, I wonder if it was still based out of this, uh, this anti-individualist, anti-capitalist, anti-any anti, uh, of those things where the Nazis were really still, a, they were a socialist party. And then they also, you see them run cover for, uh, for Stalin as well. I'm assuming there's plenty of stories about Cuba and Venezuela and all of that throughout time. And I wonder if they really were just lumped in with this pro-collectivism mindset uh, with the, with this pro uh, socialist mindset, maybe, and we look back at it right now and say, "There's no way that happened," but that's looking through our lens. Yeah, it, that's a great point. I, you know, I'd, I'd actually never really thought of it along those lines of pro collectivism per se, and it's a really good sort of axis to think about this on. That might be true. Um, I do think, sort of, maybe on the other side of that coin which is something that's almost anti-American when you, when you say, okay, well, what did, what else did all these regimes have in common? Bill, they were all actively opposed to American power and influence in the world. Mm -hmm. And the New York times was very sympathetic in its actions, at least to, um, as we've seen in the Nazis with the, with the Nazi stuff, we've spoken about one incident. There's just endless number of cases that, that span that decade from, let's say, the early 30s to the early 40s that include them being very, very supportive of the Munich Accords, which really handed the Germans even more diplomatic cover. They were they called the Berlin Olympics, the Nazi Olympics, the greatest sporting event of all time. Mm -hmm. That was the headline. And the article was even worse than the headline. The article was just a celebration of this, this Nazi propaganda event um, again and again and again. So I, you know, I look back and I think there, there is this anti-Americanism that runs through all this, this kind of um, fallacious reporting, whether it's pro-Cuba, pro-Fidel, or um, even the 1619 Project, which is the most recent case um, where the, the New York Times came out saying, Actually, America was not founded in liberty in 1776. It was founded in slavery in 1619 when the first slaves reached the colonies. Uh, sorry, America, all that great stuff you told yourself about your country, not true. The exact opposite is true. And that's an interesting case also in reference to our earlier talk about grayness, because that's very black and white. They're not giving room there to say, yeah, okay, America has this very dark history and we are not done with it. It's still part of our lives. They're not saying it's a nuanced case. They're saying this is all or nothing. This is a slaveocracy and we're still just kind of inhabiting its remnants. So, um, but at the end of the day, that's not a pro-American message. I would say, I would say that is quite an anti-American message. That, that really still goes to the idea of, uh, 
a lot of their uh, a lot of their incentives to just be anti America because when you tell people that America is started in 1619 and is just rooted in slavery and ev- then you think about every single part of the country you think about uh, now we know the well you talk about the founding fathers you're just talking about a bunch of racist slaveholders right so why do I care about a quote from Thomas Jefferson or a quote from Benjamin Franklin. These are just a bunch of slaveholding, uh, terrible people. Uh, obviously, uh, those were terrible things <laughs> going on, but um, this really changes our society, right? You end up with a very large group of people that uh, no longer believe in or no longer, uh, I guess, respect the ideas that America was really founded on because now it's slavery. Now it's not individual liberty. Yeah, one hundred percent. You're, you're. It's a real subversion of values, and it's using Nietzschean term, where you are saying this narrative you we've all told ourselves since the founding of the country, uh, it was completely false. And they actually use those exact words that I just said. Like that's almost a verbatim quote from the sixteen nineteen project itself. What they are trying to achieve there is what they called a reframing of the narrative, a reframing of American history in terms of different kinds of values. And, you know, I think from the point of view of an African-American person, I could probably put myself in their shoes. I mean, obviously, I don't know what it's like to walk around in America as an African-American person, but I could say, okay, I could look back on on a history like that and be like, why would I ever want to endorse this? However, I think the real problem with the 1619 Project was that they were selling falsehoods. The core claims that it makes are historically unsupportable. And that's where things go really wrong because they're willing to make those claims anyway. Their own fact checkers, these are professors at, at really prestigious universities, came to them and said, these things are not true. Don't publish them. And they published them anyway. And what that says to me is that they were willing to do whatever it takes in order to sell this narrative. Whether it's about the truth or not, It's that's not the concern. The concern was always about the narrative and always about power. And when, again, this to me is the core problem here is when you're putting power in front of the truth the power before the truth, you've got a problem. And the other twist here with the 1619 Project is that they have openly acknowledged, the New York Times has openly acknowledged that this is a very big part of their marketing stack for the next few years. They're looking at younger, more woke millennial audiences, and they know that they need to engage them on these issues for in order to make them into subscribers. And they use the 1619 Project as a centerpiece of that marketing effort. And that's where the money comes back into play. And another big problem is uh, that we have, let's say that Let's say uh, they came out and they said, well, when we say 1619, it was founded. What we're what we're really saying is uh, what if it was founded in 1619? We're not saying it was. We're just writing as if this were the case. Uh, we didn't mean that it actually was founded in 1619. I think some some things like that were said at some time. But the problem is once you've made this impression on people, once you've got the narrative out there, it's really hard to ever take away that impression afterwards because it's like you've opened that part in people's minds and you've opened this door and how do you ever get that back? Yeah. And, and, you know, sometimes that does happen where a, an incredibly false claim just 
just flat out false. Like, um, you know, during the, the Capitol riot, uh, Capitol Hill riots where an officer was, and died afterwards. And the New York times had, had published for weeks and weeks and weeks that he was killed. They use the word kill. Oh, you still he can't actually, say, you can't say that he actually died of a stroke afterwards. You, you can't, um, he was hit in the head by a fire extinguisher and that's what happened. He was killed there. Right. right. That's who you're talking about, right? That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Officer Sicknick. And yeah. he, so, you know, the, 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 the medical evidence is very clear. He died of a stroke. And the stroke is had there was no connection that they were able to draw between stroke and being hit in the head. But once the impression is made, as you're saying, it's there. It's in our minds. It it changes the framing of the entire story. And they're never gonna go back and write the next 12 articles to counter the first 12 saying, oh, actually the coroner said this. Oh, actually the autopsy showed this. Oh, actually, blah, blah, blah. That never happens. And what we have is this kind of artifact on our minds about what we believe to be the truth. And, you know, even on a subconscious level with the 1619 project, though, that's it's a bit of a different case because they're not only kind of letting the falsehoods remain, they're actively leaning into this by putting this putting this. Uh, framework into school curricula, into make, turning it into podcasts, into um, series with, with I, I forget who's the partner, Netflix or Oprah, whoever it is, or both, um, and, and really leaning into that foundational notion that this country was founded in slavery, whether or not 1619 was the date, whether or not they, we still want to call Abraham Lincoln a racist as they did in the, in the, the first issue of the 1619 project. Those are all become trivial details. And that's the real point here is that what we consider to be the essence of history, which is the hard facts, the assertions, the claims for them are just kind of, uh, you know, little pivot points that you're using to build up the bigger narrative. And what really matters is the bigger narrative. And what do you, what do you think that bigger narrative is? Is it just, is it the anti-American narrative? Is that what they're working towards? Is it, is this all just to, uh, subvert any type of, uh, respect or love for the country to someday take it down? I mean, what, obviously this is speculation. We don't know. I think it's a lever in this case. It's a lever for power, as it always is. I think it, the lever here is for political power to say, hey, all you millions of people out there quaintly believing that this country was built in liberty and that you're living in a land of liberty, wrong. You're living in a country built in slavery and you better get working to fix it. And if you're not fixing it, you're part of the problem. That's what this sort of message we hear from critical race theory, which is that, you think you're neutral just because you're not involved. That's wrong. If you are not working towards our ends, our ideological ends, then you're a racist. And the 1619 Project is sort of doing the same thing, saying we've got this America that you see today. You look out your window and see America. That's all kind of this like slaveocracy or the remnants of a slaveocracy. And in order to make this ongoing injustice right, we all need to get involved we all need to get in, on, in line with the New York Times' ideological goals or, and critical race theories' ideological goals. And you all got to get working. You all got to get voting for our candidates, donating to our causes. So this becomes a political lever. And very, I mean, that's very clear in my mind that that's the case. And it's a great motivator to say, like, you, you're basically a slave owner. You and me on this phone calls, we're basically enjoying the fruits of slavery. So we better find a way to make that right. 
another thing I wanted to mention when we were talking about some of these uh, ridiculous things that turned out to not be true, uh, when it comes to Trump, um, but not a big, I wasn't a big Trump supporter, didn't vote for the guy, just so you know. But from what I heard after the Charlotte, Charlottesville thing, uh, he refused to condemn white supremacy, right? He would not do it. Mm-hmm. Now, this is one of those things where that is a narrative that uh, almost anyone that reads anything on the left would tell you. But actually, if you watched, uh, say, 30 seconds further into his speech, uh, when he says that uh, white supremacy should be condemned and that he wasn't talking about the Nazis that were there at the protest, um, this is just another great example of something that you can't erase from people's minds. People will still say he refuses to condemn white supremacists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and with Trump, that was um, a particularly egregious example because the, they were so committed to opposing Trump that you know the, the, the there was this big explosion of outrage at the New York Times within its own ranks when they published a, a, a headline that said something about a Trump speech being um, saying that America needs to be, choose between unity and hate, and that you know maybe he's. Maybe the speech was about that. Maybe it wasn't about that. But it really sparked this like revulsion at the New York Times and also among people in the culture surrounding it, involved with it. They could not tolerate that the idea that he might have said something that they could agree with. And that's just the extreme polarization at work. And again, that serves them, very much serves them, because this is an institution that is read by millions and millions of people, most of whom don't pay for that. Only two or 3% of their audience is actually paying them through subscriptions. Their advertising doesn't really, I mean, it's on the decline. They know that subscriptions are their future. And when you're catering to a base of 2%, you are by virtue of that structure going to polarize your content. And that's exactly what's happened. They've accused, the New York Times and other parts of the media have accused of tech doing that through algorithms. And that's probably true. Facebook, the algorithm is, as we all know, is optimized to serve you content that is polarized and polarizing because it makes money. And the thing that we've all missed is that the media has been doing exactly this forever basically. And now they're doing it more than they've done it in the past. As we, you know, what I was talking about with CNN is that they are doubling down on that model. They're not saying let's move to the middle because there's no money in the middle. There's no political power in the middle. It's in the margins that that's happening. And that's where we end up with things like uh, the officer Sicknick narrative or the narrative about Russia bounties. The New York Times reported that Russia was paying terrorists in Afghanistan bounties to kill American soldiers and that Trump not only knew about it, but refused to do anything about it. That was the, that was the narrative from start to finish. Turns out was that not only did Trump refuse to not refuse to do anything about it, it just wasn't true at all. There were no Russian bounties. There was nothing of the sort, but it's still in our minds. And again, it doesn't pay them to go back and correct it. It doesn't pay them to go back and say, oh, actually, our reporting is not quite as as uh, foolproof, not quite as hermetically sealed as we would like to make it out to be. I don't know if people realize how big of a deal uh, it is in people's mindsets to think that the the president, the commander in chief, not only racist white supremacist, but is also uh, willing 
to allow U.S. service members to die and do nothing about it and, and to actually be okay with that as the commander-in-chief uh, because he is so uh, wrapped up with Russia, of course, because I'm sure I'm sure New York Times and, there, and uh, a lot of other papers were obviously pushing the entire Russian uh, propaganda piece right after the election in 2016. And uh, it's really, I don't know, it's it's... <laughs> It's kind of disappointing. I don't know if I really expect anything anything else really from a bunch of uh, uh, people that are going to be biased. But what do we do to actually solve this? Um, my main my main thing I wonder is uh, does this does responsibility actually just lie with the readers to to do their due diligence and make sure they're not being manipulated? I I think so. I think that is you. you it's very hard to make an industry as big and powerful as the media change. It's very hard to force change on them because the culture is institutionalized there. It's a culture of, uh, of now partisanship bias, um, and money. So how do you separate people from those things? I think it's very hard. Unlike other industries such as ag or, or pharma, where you, you don't really have that much choice as a consumer. You're not going to refuse the cancer drug, you know, like for some other, in this case, you actually can make choices. You can say to yourself, you know what, I'm not going to engage it anymore. I'm not going to lean back and take this kind of passive approach to news and information. I'm going to lean forward and search. This is the thing that I like to say is sort of a paradigm shift from this browse browsing mentality we've all had. We're like, let's just see what's on CNN or Drudge or whatever and accept it. And moving into something that's much more search. Let me go find out what actually happened. And if there isn't someone else presenting a counter narrative, let me really think hard. When they say in the Russian bounty case, New York Times saying unnamed intelligence agencies in the United States are saying that, let me ask myself, what does that mean? What kind of sourcing is that? Is that something I would really want to rely on? An anonymous source that's not even identifying the agency. It's not identifying who that person is within the agency. Could be a, a janitor, for all we know, making a supposition, came across a piece of paper, he thought it meant this or meant that. But we don't, we don't know. And if you don't know, you can't accept things as fact. And I think that's where it's really incumbent upon us as individuals, as news consumers, and even, you know, going further than saying, let me form a group of people. Let me get on Reddit and start questioning these things. Maybe I'll create a, a subreddit about a particular topic I want to understand better. And let's create our own version of that that is rooted in fact, that is corroborated, that has multiple sources that we can rely on. Do our jobs as not citizen journalists, but citizen news consumers. Um, the, uh, do you think that the new technologies that we have, obviously the last few years, we've seen tons of different news organizations pop up. We're all using our phones for everything now. Is this going to help solve the problem? And the other thing I wanted to ask on top of that is how much do you think people like the New York times and the establishment media, uh, want to discredit all of these other independent news agencies and they want to be the arbiters of truth? Um, I would say to to sort of answer in reverse order, they absolutely have to, in their minds, remain the arbiters of truth. And there was this sort of 
um, New York Times article about Clubhouse, the the new sort of chat uh, platform that was accompanied when they tweeted out, they tweeted out saying that Clubhouse gives people the unfettered ability to have conversations online. And you're thinking to yourself, why would it be fettered? Why would anyone need to characterize it as unfettered? What's wrong with that? And I think that is definitely a reflection of them used to being the gatekeepers, not just of the news, but of a flow of information between people. That's the media. If we didn't have someone mediating our interactions, we wouldn't be connected to one another in the past. To answer the first part of the question, tech, digital technologies, internet technologies, and I'm guessing very much so blockchain going forward will be a part of connecting us directly as it already is, and also using, using that connection to create tools that enable us to do things like get together on Reddit to determine what might be the truth about the Officer Sicknick case, the Russia Bounties case, going back and looking at what happened in Nazi Germany in the 1930s, retelling those stories in more accurate and authentic ways. Because I think people really want that. I think people, you know, 99% of people want the truth. I don't think people out there are like, oh yeah, sure, just lie to me, no problem. Like I'll, I'll be fine with the lie. They, they really do want the truth. And I think most people are willing to sacrifice something for it, whether that's their time or their energy, um, they, they are willing and now they are able to. And I think that's a big threat to institutions like the Times. Uh, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about today was you have a, another novel coming up, right? Called the, is that He Falls Alone? Is that right? Do you want to tell yeah. us a little bit about that? Yeah. yeah you know, that's, that's a, um, I, I write fiction as well and nonfiction as, as you know, but He Falls Alone is also about that same notion of searching for the truth. I mean, the, the story is, um, it was inspired by my own search for the truth when my my best friend disappeared in Nicaragua around 2005 ish, um, and I wanted to go find out what happened. And when I was there, I kind of was inspired to tell a story different from his story, but that's about a family, like the New York Times' only family, a very powerful, wealthy family that had obscured a dark and terrible crime that that this protagonist was involved in and he goes to find out what really happened and part of that story is looking at the huge costs that you have to bear when you want to go seek the truth it, it's not easy it's not always fun but i think it is um i think it's the adventure that we are all a part of in today's world i think this is the new adventure is you know it used to be going out to like chart a river or a tributary or something to explore the wilderness and that's great, but we know that most of the wilderness today is charted or we have satellite imagery and we know what things are. What we don't yet know is the what's true for us. We're, we're, we've been cast into this very strange new reality where the truth has become very wishy-washy. But I think people are becoming intrepid. They're becoming intellectually intrepid and they're becoming morally intrepid. And they're going out and they're doing things just like what we're doing right now, which is having the the uh, steadfastness and the courage to start a podcast, to start a website, to create a magazine, to go out there and, f and seek. Um, and I think that's an incredible thing. Uh, one thing I've always been really interested in is uh, when it comes to getting 
uh, point across. Let's say that the idea is that you need to always seek the truth and always find the truth and everything. Um, let's just say that that's the idea. Is it better to do that in, uh, say, a, a nonfiction book about how it's important to seek the truth or to tell a story like what you were talking about uh, that someone is going to be able to latch on to? Um, I liken this a lot to, let's say, Ayn Rand, I could uh, read Atlas Shrugged, or I could read uh, Capitalism, an Unknown Ideal, and which one is actually going to do better to uh, change society in, in that direction? Do you think it's the stories? Or do you think it's the actual, just, uh, uh, I don't know what you call that, the actual nonfiction? Um, I think they both they both serve that end in different ways. And, uh, you know, I think in the case of nonfiction, um, you know, especially if you're trying to create a, a theory or a sort of trying to understand the world in a different way and put that new understanding out there, you're probably going to be doing it for a bit of a smaller audience. But the beauty of storytelling is that you can encapsulate that idea, put it in a story that is compelling, and then you've got an ability to speak to the hearts and minds of thousands or hundreds of thousands, or if you're really lucky, millions of people. And if it's an epic or an immense idea, um, really put it in a beautiful way, you can do that across time. And that's why storytelling is so great. Of course, you can do it with nonfiction books. I mean, we still read philosophy. We still read um, history books and biographies from the past. But I think the books that really do endure tend to be fiction. They tend to be a catcher in the rye, or they tend to be Dickens or whoever else it might be because the universality of storytelling, that urge for people to tell stories and to hear stories told is just so permanent inside of us that we are always willing to engage it. Yeah, I, uh, I agree with that. And it's actually something that I think um, people more on the left side have always been better at doing, which is using uh, using narratives, using stories. Have you look at Hollywood, uh, look at a lot of this. I was just thinking not too long ago, all, all the movies that I watched as I was growing up, I'm pretty sure the villain was this evil, rich, greedy capitalist. I'm, I'm pretty sure. I had no idea, but I'm pretty sure that was the villain in every single movie that I ever watched. Now, they didn't have to do a documentary about how the evil, rich, greedy capitalist was the villain in all of our lives. I just had to watch story over and over again about that, and then eventually that gets uh, kind of implanted in, in your mind, I think. It becomes part of mm -hmm. your psyche. Luckily with me, it actually didn't, um, but... Um, the other thing, because I found this, I, I listened to a few episodes too. You've got a podcast as well, right? Burning Castle podcast. Yeah, I do. Um, you know, I have conversations with um, people who are creators, uh, whether they are writers or designers, filmmakers. Um, but they are sort of looking around, seeing that the world is caught in chaos. It's a very chaotic moment for us, and they're they're trying to understand how what they do creatively can have an impact on this chaotic world and make things better for their audiences generally for the world and also for themselves, you know, to, to stay oriented in a very strange time and use creative work to do that. I think that's a, that's a very powerful thing to do. And I think it's a gift um, that, that you give to yourself and that hopefully you give to others as well. Yeah. I, I really, really love the idea of that podcast. I'm going to make sure I put a link to it in here because uh, really if, 
if all of us can take the take the responsibility on ourselves to change these things, uh, we all live in this uh, this burning, this chaotic, uh, crazy world right now. But if each one of us takes the responsibility on to fix that, uh, then you can actually change the world by by doing that. So I think it's a really great message yeah. with the podcast. Yeah, thank you. And I think that's, you know, I, I'm uh, I'm observant Jewish person, and that's a very core idea in our tradition, which is that we are all responsible for each other. You, you don't look around the world and be like, that's not my problem. You look around the world and say, that is my problem, and I need to figure out how I can make a difference. doesn't mean you need to go out and give up all your possessions and, you know, live on a mountaintop and meditate for humanity. It means you need to think about what is what is uniquely yours to give. Um, it could be so simple. Maybe you're a great skateboarder and can teach a bunch of kids how to skateboard today or help a neighbor who's older or any number of things that you know you can do. And I think that's the real message. And with the creators on The Burning Castle, these are people who know how to create music or make films or, or art or design or whatever. And they do that in in they do that faithfully. They do that with an intent to do good and to do well. And I think that's a that's the great thing. That's great. Well, Ashley, I really appreciate your time today. Great conversation and highly recommend that everyone goes out there and picks up the book. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation and hopefully we'll do it again.